This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas 2036, building long-term data-driven strategies to secure Texas's prosperity through our state's bicentennial and beyond. Learn what we're focused on right now at texas2036.org slash blog. And Raise Your Hand Texas. The future of Texas, our communities, economy, and citizenry depends on how well we prepare all students. Meet your Raise Your Hand Texas Regional Advocacy Director and get involved in hashtag TXED at RaiseYourHandTexas.org. And Marchant Good Government Fund, empowering officials and candidates by providing the tools and finances needed to serve with distinction and integrity at all levels of government. The March primary is over, but there's still a lot to talk about. The Tribune's weekly podcast has the scoop on the winners, the losers, and what shook out of this week's election. Learn more and subscribe to TribCast at texastribune.org slash audio. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the Texas Tribune TribCast, Texas Primary Edition. I'm Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Tribune. We're coming to you at noon central on Wednesday, March 2nd, uh, just hours after the kind of votes were tallied in the March 1st Texas primary. Uh, I'm sitting here with uh, Patrick Svitek, our, our uh, pol political correspondent. Hey, Patrick. Thanks for having me. And on the phone is Abby Livingston. Abby, are you there? Can you hear us? I'm here. Thank you both for joining us. Um, later on, we'll be talking with uh, two other politics reporters, James Bardagon and Alexa Ura, who are currently off stage enjoying the show. And uh, we're going to talk, you know, about everything that happened last night, the, the, the governor's race, the, some big congressional races, and, and a bunch of things kind of up and down the ballot that were of interest to Texans. We're going to start off with... The, uh, well, let me introduce first, Pat Patrick, as you, many of you know, is the Tribune's primary correspondent on the campaign trail. He's covered the 2016, 2018, 2020, and now 22 elections. Previously, has worked at the Houston Chronicle and uh, interned at the Chicago Tribune, Washington Post, and other places as well. Abby is our DC bureau chief. She is joining us actually remotely from Tarrant County. She covers Washington, DC for the Tribune and has covered political campaigns, house leadership, in Congress for Roll Call, the Capitol Hill newspaper. All right, so let's just jump into this. Patrick, I want to start at the top of the ballot here. We had Governor Greg Abbott up facing a well-funded primary challenger in Don Huffines, another challenger, Alan West, who was very well known and kind of seemed to be a thorn in the side of Greg Abbott for a long time. But Abbott prevailed and prevailed pretty convincingly. What, do you, what did you see in that election? What's your takeaway? Yeah, I wasn't totally surprised, but I do think Abbott got the kind of decisive primary victory that he was looking for. Um, you know, I don't think uh, that there was ever any question that he would win this outright. It was just a matter of how decisive of an outright win it would be. I think there was some thinking that uh, if it were six years below, it, it you know may be a little embarrassing for Abbott. But he ended up with, I think, the highest 60s. And so this is definitely the kind of... Uh, knockout punch, I think, that he wanted to deliver to the critics inside his party with this primary. Um, you know, and, and you can't forget that Don Huffines, in particular, spent a good amount of money in this race. I mean, he obviously had his personal fortune uh, at his disposal, a few, uh, a handful of, of 
hard right donors at his disposal. And so, you know, Huff and, Huffines, you know, wasn't insignificant competition financially. And so I think Abbott woke up this morning pretty pleased with um, not only winning outright, but winning outright in, in a decisive, very decisive fashion. Yeah, for sure. And you, you mentioned Huffine spending a lot of money. Alan West, of course, a, a prominent name. I mean, there had always been a little bit of a narrative going around and how, you know, Texas was being governed by Abbott over the last year, maybe even longer, about whether he was trying to kind of beat back that threat. You know, both of those candidates definitely trying to kind of defeat him from the right, ideological right in the, the primary. I mean, what's, what's Abbott's camp saying? You were on a conference call with Dave Carney uh, earlier today. What's, what's their kind of message after, after last night's result? You know, they were looking forward to the general election, which has been their public kind of posture this entire time. You know, he, Abbott, you know, throughout his entire primary, publicly ignored his challengers, um, but gave rise to a lot of speculation that he was being responsive to his challengers by the policy moves that he was making and, and the kind of firm rightward turn that we saw in the past year in Texas. And so it was an interesting primary to cover um, in that perspective. Uh, but his campaign, you know, their public posture has been that they're focused on the general election, that this primary was a dress rehearsal for getting Republicans uh, to turn out and to be unified against Beto O'Rourke. And so that was, the, that was the message from this call. So you mentioned Beto O'Rourke. He had a very strong showing as well. I mean, didn't really have what anyone really considered much of a serious challenger. Of course, that was true in 2018 as well when he was running for Senate. And he actually ended up losing some counties, particularly on the border to Seema Hernandez. This time, no such threat. I mean, I think he was in the 90s, right? 90% somewhere. Yeah, if I'm Beto O'Rourke, I'm very happy with that, that number last night. Um, you know, he obviously suffered a little humiliation, or I guess just a bit of a reality check in his 26, uh, 2018 primary for U.S. Senate. As you pointed out, I think he only got 61, 62% of the vote. He lost a bunch of, uh, you know, South Texas counties to a woman, uh, underfunded woman with a Hispanic surname we've seen before in, in some statewide Democratic primaries uh, that that can, that can have a real impact. This time around, I don't think he lost a single county. He definitely didn't lose a South Texas county. Um, and he got 91, 92% of the vote. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's probably just a testament to how well known he's become in Texas since that U.S. Senate run. Um, you know, at any time uh, you're heading into a general election like this, you want your Democratic base or your party base with your Abbott or O'Rourke as solidified as possible. And I think Beto uh, O'Rourke, you know, comes out of last night with that very much in, in play. So now the general election officially begins. I mean, you already mentioned that both of these candidates were kind of already running a general election campaign. What, are you, what do you see happening over the next few months you know, as, we, as we look forward to November? Yeah, I think you're going to see a very aggressive effort by the Abbott campaign um, you know, to portray O'Rourke, to continue port portraying O'Rourke as uh, you know, too liberal for Texas, especially seizing on comments he made and positions he took in his 2020 presidential campaign when he was obviously jockeying to stand out among a bunch of other Democrats and having to take some positions farther to the left. Um, you know, they believe that he's uh, toxic to independent voters in Texas. There's some polling that backs up that he has some work to do with, the idea that he has some work to do with independent voters. Um, you know, we've seen polling that shows that Beto O'Rourke is, you know, within uh, high single digits of Abbott right now. And so, you know, this is, I think, on paper a race that Abbott is going to have to, you know, take seriously through November. Um, but I think his team is also out um, to really 
bury Beto O'Rourke for good in Texas. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is obviously Beto O'Rourke's uh, third campaign in four years. Um, and I think that, you know, they want this to be, you know, three strikes you're out politically for Beto O'Rourke, and they don't want him, you know, when they're done with this race, uh, you know, they, they want to have him in the ground, basically. They want his, his political career to be over. And so that's why you're probably seeing a little extra effort. Sure. Abby, I want to talk to you a little about the con congressional races. The big one I think that most of us were paying the most attention to coming in was House District, uh, U.S. House District 28, Henry Cuellar, and a progressive challenger from his left, Jessica Cisneros. That one is turned out to be extremely close. Henry Cuellar really almost seemed to squeak it out, although it's starting to look like he is likely going into a runoff with Cisneros. How should Cuellar be thinking about this? I mean, he, he, he obviously had reason to be nervous. The, the makeup of that district changed, bringing in a little bit more of Bayer County. Cisneros, of course, ran against him in 2020 and, and did much better in Bayer County. And then, of course, he was under investigation by the FBI uh, in the run-up to early voting. Should he be celebrating this? Should he be breathing a sigh of relief? Or should he be nervous because he is in a runoff and he's an incumbent, and that's not a happy position to be? If I was Henry Cuellar right now, I would be saying a prayer, because right now a lot of things are out of his control. Um, and the reason I say that, number one, you and I discussed this this morning, and you pointed it out, um, the margin is so tight right now in this race that the extra votes coming in, this is, this is going to go to overtime. You know, it wouldn't shock me if lawyers get involved, um, although I don't know if the campaigns want to spend a lot of time on litigating and move on to the, the runoff. But... Um, and the reason I said that is because this runoff is going to be extremely difficult for him. Um, as you mentioned, it's never good when an incumbent does not or is pushed into a runoff. That is that is real dangerous territory. We saw it with Ralph Hall, um, uh, I guess, in 2014. Um, and it is just a major, major blinking red light about an incumbent because that means that um, 50% plus one of the electorate in your primary voted against you. Um, the other thing is I am going to be curious to watch is how his fundraising uh, goes into the spring. Um, I had not checked his war chest heading into Election Day, the latest, but he came in. He had a lot of money. He's a member of the House Appropriations Committee. That means you can raise a lot of money. There is now a cloud over him. Um, he has not been indicted. All we know is his home has been raided in his campaign office by federal officials, and uh, we we have a one ABC report somehow linking this to the former Soviet Republic of Azerbaijan. Um, things could get interesting if the FBI comes out and says there's nothing here. He's got the cloud removed and he can go on with his campaign. Um, if it's the opposite, um, you know, if, if it's either we don't know anything else or more information comes out, uh, this could be interesting. What I can tell you is every single Democratic member of Congress who is a member of Congress has been watching this race closely. Um, there is private anger at the FBI for the raid happening so close to the election and not giving Quayer time to litigate it. Um, as I reported before, I don't have any sort of speculation within the Justice Department, but uh, there is a sense uh, that when the FBI moves on something like this because they're afraid of destruction of evidence or they made a really big mistake or miscalculation in the views of many Democrats uh, who can look back at James Comey. Um, either way, uh, it, 
it's never great for an incumbent to be in this position. I am betting Cisneros is going to be raising a ton of money and his financial advantage may evaporate. It may not. There may be a lot of people who say, look, he's been accused of nothing. I'm going to give him money. But I think money is going to be a key factor in this runoff. Sure. You know, we we were watching kind of three progressives seeking to kind of join the Texas delegation from the Democratic side, uh, Cisneros being one, Greg Kassar being another one. He kind of easily uh, won his seat, uh, no runoff necessary, even though that was an opening seat, op- an open seat. And then um, we also had Jasmine Crockett up in Dallas, who I think there was a lot of hope among the progressive wing of the party that she would also avoid a runoff. That did not end up being the case. There's been a lot of kind of conversation talk about how those three could possibly change the the Texas delegation here, um, and what that might mean about you know the Democratic Party in Texas looking forward. You know, Cuellar, of course, a, a well-known moderate um, in an area of Texas that has traditionally been moderate, and now he's kind of in the fight for his political life here. What is your takeaway of those three races and the results? I mean, they didn't get everything they wanted here, but they everything they want is still kind of right in front of them uh, heading into the runoff. I think the progressives have been making progress in Texas. I've covered two presidential primaries just in Texas, 2016 and 2020. Bernie Sanders was on the ballot for both. And particularly in 2020, we saw a dramatic movement in the state organization in favor of Joe Biden. Um, And four years before for Hillary Clinton. Um, These are the people who are superdelegates elected to office whose endorsements hold sway. And they have repeatedly chosen uh, almost unanimously the um, more pragmatic candidate. And um, this was a central fight within several of these primaries, uh, progressivism versus pragmatism. Um, The fights aren't over. And I'll be curious how organized the quote-unquote establishment is in these runoffs, Um, particularly in the Texas 30, the uh, Jasmine Crockett, uh, Jane Hope Hamilton race to replace Eddie Bernice Johnson. Um, Crockett did not have the strongest campaign infrastructure on her campaign financial report, but she had a lot of help from outside groups. And so that seemed to lift her up into being in the position where avoiding a runoff was a consideration. But Jane Hope Hamilton is a former chief of staff on Capitol Hill. She's very well regarded by many people in Congress and in Washington. And I do wonder if a super PAC might now move in in her favor. But I think it could be a very interesting, clean fight as opposed to the the South Texas Cuellar Cisneros fight where you have that FBI cloud. Now, in Central Texas, Greg Kassar soundly defeated um, State Representative Eddie Rodriguez, who as of now is currently in a battle within a few votes of third place. And so um, I I do think one thing here is campaign fundamentals matter. Kazar ran a very strong field operation, um, and it came through. And uh, so I think a lot of Austinites have seen his signs around town and things. So, um, you know, I think there is some change in the ideology, and I think it could be harder to whip votes in Texas for um, a Democratic leader. But um, because in the past, the Texas congressional delegation has been very disciplined and marched in line behind Nancy Pelosi. Um, but also, uh, some campaign fundamentals matter, and the progressives ran better campaigns. Absolutely. There was another congressional runoff, Patrick, one that you wrote about earlier this year, Van Taylor up in Collin County getting pushed into a runoff against former county judge Keith Self. This was a race that I was particularly interested in because 
that district previously had kind of turned into a swing district was made more conservative due to redistricting. Van Taylor voted to certify the 2020 election results and was getting hit pretty hard on that by self and by other candidates. What's your takeaway from that race? Yeah, he, he faced four challengers there and they, uh, they all were you know, hitting him uh, specifically over his vote last year for a, a January 6th commission. Um, to be clear, this is a proposed bipartisan independent commission uh, that never became law. But Nancy Pelosi, as we know, later created a select committee on this issue. Van Taylor voted against that, <laughs> but his opponents basically blurred the distinction between that committee, which whose work is still ongoing, and the commission that never became law that he voted for. Um, and they, they, were, they were effective, at least to the point of being able to force him into a runoff. Um, and now this, this runoff uh, becomes a question of, uh, you know, whether Trump would want to get involved in this race. Um, you know, that could be a difference maker in the runoff. Um, there's other votes uh, by Taylor that they were attacking, like he was also kind of a Republican outlier in the Texas delegation in voting to remove all Confederate monuments from the U.S. Capitol grounds. And so, um, you know, there's a few different lines of attack there. Um, but the main one is definitely that one about January 6th, and it gets to whether he's been you know, sufficiently loyal to uh, former President Trump. Right. So, you know, a lot of interesting races on the ballot. Uh, of course, the attorney general's race we haven't talked about. We'll get a little bit more into that when James comes on the stage. But seeing uh, George P. Bush enter into a runoff with the incumbent Ken Paxton. Uh, elsewhere across the state, statewide incumbents, you know, held strong. We mentioned Abbott, Sid Miller, um, and, and, and uh, other seats, that Dan Patrick, Mike Collier, um, or, uh, um, <laughs> Mike Collier, Glenn Hager, um, uh, in the uh, Comptroller race. Um, the legislature also seemed to go a little bit at chalk, right? Um, a lot of the incumbents holding strong, a lot of the favored candidates of Dan Patrick and Dade Phelan holding strong and things like that. So I want to ask, given all of that, I'm going to bring in an audience question as we take question from our members um, as we go through this podcast. Candy asks, were there any surprises in any primary? Did anything surprise you in the results last night? Patrick, I'll, I'll ask you that first. I was surprised um, by, in some of the state house races that were being prioritized by leadership, how well they went for them. Um, if you look at, for example, the primary battle between State Representative Reggie Smith and Shelley Luther, who is um, you know, a vocal critic of state leadership, whether it's Greg Abbott or Dave Phelan, um, Smith won that race by double digits. Um, and if you watched that race in the final days, if you looked at the TV ads, you looked at the, the blows that were being exchanged, you would have thought that was a dead heat. And so that was a pretty decisive result in a primary where House leadership was, was heavily invested. Um, Ryan Gian, the uh, South Texas, former South Texas Democrat who switched to the Republican Party last year, uh, you know, he faced uh, two Republican primary challenges and, and won with nearly 60% of the vote. Um, which I, I consider impressive given the atmospherics on that race. I think it's, it, is, it is hard sometimes to, to do that party switch in the middle of a cycle and then have to turn around and run against people who are <laughs> credibly saying you're not one of them. <laughs> you know? Um, so you know, I think that's a race that leadership was heavily invested in that they came away with a decisive win in. Um, so those were some, I think, that surprised me just by maybe the decisiveness of them. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I, I will say I was a little surprised that Van Taylor did go to a runoff. 
Um, for most of the night, it did look like he was going to come in right above 50. Um, so I was a little surprised that he slipped below 50. Yeah, you know, you talk about the, the, the strength of the leadership. I mean, one thing that I am thinking about coming off these elections is if you kind of exist in our kind of online world and are paying attention to Twitter and, and some of the more loud voices in the Republican Party, you, you feel a kind of distaste or frustration with the leadership of the state, um, whether it's Greg Abbott and a lot of people kind of tend to pile on him. Uh, particularly on Twitter, you know, the, the, the people attacking Dade Phelan, um, et cetera. And you look at these results, and it was a very kind of pro-Republican leadership night. You know, we already mentioned Greg Abbott swept the, I mean, not swept, he, he, he cruised yeah. to re-election. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, the leaders of both chambers doing well as well. I mean, one thing I'm kind of asking myself is that, you know, do we need to pay a little bit less attention to that noise because maybe the Republican Party is a little bit more aligned behind these folks than we, we might get the impression. Well, I think what you've seen over the, hopefully this helps answer that question, I think what you've seen over the last year is that the, you know, the center of gravity in the Republican Party of Texas, however you want to define it, has moved pretty starkly to the right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you have like... <laughs> The, the, the mainstream position of the incumbent in a lot of these state house primaries is pro-constitutional carry, pro what they would call heartbeat bill, um, you know, pro-ban on, you know, medical treatment for transgender children. And those are, those are like three issues alone that would have been like what primary challengers would have run on last cycle, right? Mm -hmm. But like now those are like in, in at least most of these state house Republican primaries, that's like the platform of like the incumbent, yeah. you know, or like the, the mainstream guy being supported by... Uh, establishment groups like Texas for Lawsuit Reform. Yeah. And so, you know, I think it just reflects, you know, this kind of, if you think that last night was kind of a status quo election, I think it just reflects a Republican, a Texas Republican Party that over the past year has seen its center of gravity more align with these Republican base voters um, who are determining these, these albeit low turnout primaries. Yeah, and that kind of touches on a question that Ann asked us, is that how much of do you think that is of the electorate moving to the right, or is it just a lack of participation from moderate and, and left-leaning voters in the state? Well, I mean, I think that the, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a complicated <laughs> one. I'm yeah, staring yeah. at it right now trying to, <laughs> trying to parse it. Um, you know, I think that the electorate, um, you know, is moving to the right in some ways and it's being reflected in the policymaking in this state. Um, I think that redistricting has a lot to do with this current shift to the right that we're talking about because, um, as the Tribune has chronicled, redistricting dramatically reduced and redistricting the process that's controlled by Republicans, we should say, in Texas, um, you know, dramatically reduced the number of competitive races in November. And yeah. so we are very decisively back in a political environment in Texas where if you're going to lose re-election, it's going to be in the primary. And so, you know, we have a lot of incumbents running with an outsized focus on the primary again. Um, yeah, I think that's reflected in the results. Is yeah. there any incentive to shift to the middle? I mean, you, you the, the history of political, you know, presidential elections, I guess maybe pre-2016, was to, you know, reach your base in the primary and then try to reach those middle ground voters. Abbott has survived this primary. He's, he's come out with the, the mandate that I think he wanted from the Republican Party. Do we, is there any chance we see a kind of cooling down of those hot red button, hot button red issues between now and November? 
Um, yeah, I do think you'll see a, a, an implicit cooling down. You won't see uh, incumbents, Republican incumbents, being as emphatic about some of these hot-button issues as you, as you described them. I think Abbott is somewhat a unique case because he has kind of a unique issue set in his, in his general election campaign. He has the power grid, which he is the public, the public face of. And so I don't necessarily know if he needs to move to the center on that, but it's, it's a unique issue that I think defies the typical political strategy that you just said, where it's like fire your base up in the primary, move to the, the middle in the, um, in the general election. And so I think uh, for Abbott, there is some benefit um, and some value in moving to the middle um, you know, in his race because of the somewhat unique issue set that he's facing in his race. But for these state house Republican incumbents, um, you know, again, I think they'll be implicitly less, you know, less vocal about some of these issues. But I, I don't see a need for the overwhelming majority of them to have to, you know, quote, pivot to the center or anything, just given the way these districts have been drawn in November. Sure. All right. Well, thank you, Patrick, and thank you, Abby. It was great talking with you. I think we are going to bring up our next round of panelists, Alexa and James. Hello, Alexa. It's been uh, about two years since we've done this on this stage. Hard to imagine. Hey, James. Hello. All right. Thank you all for joining us. James, I want to start with you. We mentioned the attorney general's race. I think that one ended up being kind of the most fun to watch the results <clears throat> roll in last night. Right. There was a time where we thought Ava Guzman might be the, the candidate who uh, gets into that primary, but Bush, you know, the, the, the votes came in for Bush in the end. What's your takeaway from that race? What happened? Well, it just got a little nervy. It just got a little nervy there early on in the night. I think what we had been seeing all along was that uh, Eva Guzman was sort of peaking there at the end of the race. We saw at the attorney general debate the, the previous Thursday or last Thursday. Gosh, time is just a circle right now. <laughs> but um, we saw that uh, Bush was really going after her and she was going after Bush. They, they were sort of jockeying for that second place. And then even general, Attorney General Paxton got involved in terms of sort of putting out those attack ads on her. Um, I think that reflected her sort of surge in the end. And that came out in the early voting where Bush and Guzman were sort of neck and neck in all the big counties that were coming out. But in the end, George P. Bush had been polling second consistently. I mean, throughout the campaign, he had been a consistent second. And I think as the, as the night rolled on, all those votes started coming in and started reflecting the actual polling. Um, and even though they left it pretty late into the night, I think comfortably around 11-ish, uh, the, the Bush campaign felt comfortable saying that they were going to get into a runoff. I think we called it around that time. The New York Times called it around that time as well. Yeah, and we have up on the screen right now the, the results with the map. Um, and I did enjoy that little green corner yeah. of East Texas where Louis Gohmert performed pretty the well. Gohmert green belt. Exactly, green yeah. Belt. And I thought green was a very appropriate East Texas <laughs> color for that yeah. map as well, which I like. And, you know, and actually looking at these results now, I mean, Guzman was actually, Guzman was actually closer to Gohmert than she was yes. to Bush in the final results. So she came out and, you know, Bush... A, a decently comfortable effort getting into that uh, that uh, runoff, yeah. which is going to be quite a runoff. I mean, right. these are two big names, right? Ken Paxton has been a very important and influential person on in the lives of Texans over the last, what, eight years, you know, two yeah. terms. Bush, of course, the, the latest member of a, a, a political dynasty in Texas. Um, and I think some kind of philosophical differences setting up. Paxton endorsed by Trump. Bush 
coming from a family that is, you know, not particularly loved by the Trump wing of the party, <laughs> although B George P. Bush has maybe a little <clears throat> bit different relationship with the former president and maybe with those voters. We'll see how that plays out. And of course, the legal issues facing Paxton as well. What's going to happen here? Uh, I mean, I'm not asking you to predict the race, but how does this play out over the next couple of months in, in ahead of the runoff? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think you're setting it up exactly. I mean, it really is uh, a choice for voters of do they want to stick with an ultra-conservative incumbent attorney general who has uh, former President Trump's support uh, but has all these legal troubles and this like cloud hanging over himself and his office. It's not just a securities fraud case that's been going on for six, going on seven years, but now it's this FBI investigation where eight of his former top deputies said that he has abused his office, um, has taken bribes, and the FBI is looking into it. I mean, that is, those are serious accusations, and that's what got him into the runoff. I mean, it's got to be said, all three of the candidates said that that was their main issue with him. He just had he was too distracted by his legal problems that he couldn't effectively do the work that the people of the state of Texas wanted him to do. Um, or are voters going to choose George P. Bush? He's a known entity. He comes from the Bush dynasty. He's I think it can be reasonably said a little less conservative than than Paxton, but he's still a pretty conservative guy. He's cut um, a much more conservative uh, path than uh, even his father or or his uncle, um, and I think that's reflected uh, in 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 sort of his his political persona. Um, but obviously not quite as conservative as Paxton. Will voters say, okay, he's conservative enough for me, um, and he doesn't have the legal clouds? I, I don't know. I guess that's what we're going to find out. And the big issue, too, is like I think Republican voters have to think about then in the general, can this person win against a Democrat? Right. And that's going to be the big message from Bush, right, is that you don't want Ken Paxton with all this legal cloud hanging over his head going up against a Democrat in the general election because that could be what causes us to lose this, this very important office. Right, and, and Bush has been saying that every opportunity he gets. He said it at the attorney general debate. He said it last night, um, and he's sort of positioning himself against uh, Rochelle Garza or Lee Merritt. Joe Jaworski, I think, is still in there on the Democratic side as well. Um, but, you know, he's saying all, basically any of the Democrats are going to be from the left liberal wing of the party, um, and that's not what we want in the state. Of course, Bush now coming out today saying, I've actually got some dirt <laughs> on Bush uh, that nobody's been talking about, and, and we'll be ready to have those discussions. I am interested in seeing, like, how those discussions will be had. Bush has come out strong and challenged him to five televised debates. Uh, of course, Paxton hasn't attended any of the debates. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll, it will be interesting to see how those discussions and debates are had. It's easier to avoid a debate if there's four people in the race. Mm -hmm. If it's just one person in a race you're running against, it's, it's a lot harder to avoid that, that debate. I think this narrative is hard though, right? Because the legal issues that are often cited as hanging over Ken Paxton have been there since almost his entire tenure as attorney yeah. general. And the thing is like, the benefit of incumbency when from that from the position you're in, you can still sort of wage the issues that the voters care about in your lawsuits, which we've seen a ton of them come out from the Paxton campaign or from the Paxton office. Like I, I'm just not sure if the narrative is clear enough 
to sort of overcome the benefits of incumbency. And particularly in February leading up to, coincidentally, the March 1st primary, there were a lot of lawsuits related to the issues that conservative voters care about, right? There was the transgender uh, affirmative care opinion that came out. Uh, there were a couple of other issues where, where Paxton really, from his official position as attorney general said, here I am doing the thing. Mm -hmm. I think uh, just this week, right, on Monday, he came out and celebrated the six months of the uh, quote-unquote heartbeat bill being in effect. I mean, those are that, that's him beating his chest and saying, look what I've done as the attorney general. I think the legal issues, it really depends on how much uh, his opponent can can sort of hammer this. One thing that Bush noted yesterday as a watch party was that he believed that only one in three of Republican primary voters knew about Paxton's legal troubles. Um, I think that's interesting. The securities fraud case, it's so in the weeds that it's its yeah. hard for yeah. a, a voter to wrap their minds around it. But an FBI investigation where eight of the former top deputies are saying, hey, bribery yeah. and abuse of office, that's a little bit more easy to understand. Yeah, and the securities fraud thing didn't really have anything to do with how he executed the duties right. of that office as opposed to the FBI. I mean, I, mean, I think you're, you're right, Alexa. I mean, Texas has a long and proud history of, a, <laughs> of electing people who are under investigation or under indictment. So we should not see that as a, you know, kind of fatal blow to him. I think it is interesting, though, that this extremely conservative candidate only got 42% of the result. And you know, to kind of cite Ross Ramsey here, he always talks about like when you're an incumbent and you can't get over 50, that's not a good sign. And I think one of the interesting things is, is where will these supporters go? I mean, you can't just add up the numbers of the other candidates and say like these are the anti-Paxton votes, particularly with Louis Gohmert, who is a very, very kind of Trumpian Republican. You know, I don't think you can just automatically count those votes to go for Bush. And I think a lot of what the conversation will be in this runoff is Bush trying to be like, look, I'm just as Republican, I'm just as conservative as Paxton is. I don't have these, this cloud hanging over me. Yeah. And Paxton probably saying, you know, this guy is, you know, I, I don't know if he, he uses the term rhino, but like that kind of like, he's not one of us. He's, he's a Bush. He's not a, you know, a Trumpian Republican. Yeah, and, and that's going to be the challenge for Bush to sort of prove his mettle to conservative voters. I think he recognizes that. And yesterday, after the votes started coming rolling in, he started saying, like, I am going to try to coalesce. I'm going to get on the phone with Eva Guzman. I'm going to get on the phone with Louis Gomer. I'm going to get on the phone with Texans for Lawsuit Reform. And right now, I think he's at least struck out on two or three of those. Louis Gomer this morning said he's not going to endorse. He's going to stay out of it. Hmm. But then kind of a, <laughs> a little... A little jab there because he said if it would have been Eva Guzman, then I would have endorsed. Interesting. Uh, so, so that that complicates things for him. Um, TLR also said that they're sort of waiting to see and they're figuring out what they're doing next. They of course supported Eva Guzman, um, and then Eva Guzman, just as as you were speaking with Patrick Svitek, um, she put out a statement and she, it's it's unclear what she's going to do. But she did sort of, if you read between the lines there, she said something about she respects the the will of primary voters, and she said something about she was going to continue to stand for the uh, values, conservative values of the Republican Party of St Texas, and f to, like, integrity and honor, mm. which seems like, you know, she could be pushing towards that, Bush, but it's it's uh, it's cryptic. It's, it's yeah. like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Th thinking about, you know, Bush having to prove his conservative medals, he, he, he obviously thinks he's a conservative, 
He thinks he's conservative enough, but it is sort of like a, you know that that the 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 Mean Girls thing where it's like I'm just as popular as Brutus or, <laughs> or as Caesar, and it's like how can you how was, can you I actually make I was not that expecting happen? a Mean Girls reference. Oh, I love a Mean Girls reference <laughs> in a conversation about the Republican primary for Attorney General. Amazing. Yeah, very good. So then we also have the um, attorney, the, the Democrats, right? And Rochelle Garza doing quite well in her primary. And then a, a little bit of uncertainty in, the, in who's going to get into the, the runoff with, with her. Yeah, a little bit of uncertainty. Two, that's 2,000 votes as of, as of now with 99% uh, of the votes counted. But 2,000 votes, you can get those somewhere, and you can probably get those in Harris County. So I think both of those camps, Joe Jaworski and Lee Merritt, sort of waiting to see what happens with those late vote counts. Uh, Rochelle Garza just really ran away with that one. Not enough, obviously, to get into uh, to, to avoid the runoff. But I think with four people, uh, four major candidates, let's say I know there's a couple of others, um, with four major candidates who did not have high name recognition, I think we all expected that one to go to a runoff. Um, it is surprising, I think, uh, and and it's got to be to Rochelle Garza's credit that she. She got as much as she did. I think she's clearly the front runner. And then Jaworski and Merritt, they're fighting it out uh, for second place. That's, that's going to be interesting. I don't, I don't know which way that one's, that one's going to go, and I think both of those camps are sort of <laughs> looking at it. Also, they're both lawyers, so I wouldn't be surprised to see a couple <laughs> of recount fights there maybe or something. Indeed. All right, so um, Alexa, you were making fun of me last night running around the newsroom looking for narratives. <laughs> I mean, what are we, let's talk big picture. What's our, what's our takeaway from last night? Um, I mean, I think that for me, from my perch, the reality is that the political future of Texas remains in the hands of very, very few voters. You know, mm -hmm. we're talking about these potential runoffs deciding the final candidates in the Republican primary. If history is any sort of indicator, it's going to be an even smaller turnout than what we saw last night really selecting who's going to represent the party in the general. And, you know, those are the most hardcore members of the party that are going to come out on, on both sides of this. Yeah. Uh, and I think that we just sort of continue to be a state where a uh, few folks have sort of an outsized control of, of where things go. Yeah, for sure. What about you, James? Yeah, I mean, it's like the fortune favors the bold. Fortune favors whoever shows up to the primaries. Yeah. Um, and it is... It is in the hands of, uh, of very few people. So, I mean, if, if people don't like the results, uh, if people want to complain later about the results, it's because they're not involved in the, in the primary elections, and I would encourage them to, to get more involved and get their friends involved. Yeah. There's, clearly, there's clearly room for better voter turnout here in the state of Texas. Read the Tribune. You'll get really excited about uh, uh, all these races from that. Uh, you know, and that, that, that kind of segues into a question from Martha. You know, why is turnout so low then, Alexa? Well, I think, I think we have to wait for the no final numbers to come in from yesterday. You know, when we wrapped up early voting, I think it was about 10% turnout of registered voters. Assuming we have sort of a 50-50 breakdown between early voting and election day, I think we may fall somewhere between turnout of the 2018 primary and the 2020 primary. Obviously still not great numbers. You know, in a good year, we have a quarter of registered voters participate in the primary. Mm -hmm. We have 17 million registered voters. So we're not really talking about stellar numbers. You know, it's, it's interesting, though, because the, because of gerrymandering, the primaries in a lot of ways are the only races that matter in Texas, mm -hmm. particularly in a midterm election. And the extent to which people don't 
fully maybe understand the power that can come with those primary votes is, is interesting and slightly concerning. You know, Texas has long, obviously we can't talk about turnout without talking about the challenges to voting in the mm -hmm. state. We are not the easiest state to vote in. We have the earliest registration deadline. This year we've seen a significant amount of mail-in votes put in jeopardy because of the new ID requirements that Republicans enacted last year. I think we still have to sort of wait for those final numbers to try to consolidate how much of how much those numbers could have contributed to lower turnout than we would have seen otherwise. But, you know, Texas is a low turnout state. We don't really put a whole lot on the table for folks to feel excited about in terms of their ability to influence elections. You know, we've spent the last year telling people your maps are completely gerrymandered. If you live in certain areas of the state, your vote doesn't actually even count if you're a member of a certain party. And so I, I don't know how we can sort of set up that environment for people and then expect them to be excited and turn out for elections in which their votes might not actually be enough to even overcome the person that they might be wanting to vote against in November. Yeah. yeah. So Candace asked a question for James, somewhat along those lines. Do you think that the Republicans who made themselves these safe seats in the last redistricting cycle, you know, looking at who voted for Trump and who voted for Biden, did they create a different set of problems for themselves or, or else? Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. It looked like the incumbents got out all right uh, this time around. So uh, I don't think that that manifested itself in this election cycle, mm -hmm. in this Republican primary, but it could manifest itself you know, a couple of cycles down. I mean, the reason that we are in, or part of the reason I would say we are in such a polarized state still goes back to 2003 with Tom DeLay and his mid-decade redistricting. I mean, they intentionally redistricted so that uh, the situation would be like this. So there would be basically no white rural Democrats. Yeah. And, and this is what we've gotten. We've gotten the polarization of it. Um, but one other point that I'd like to make about that is that, um, you know, you were talking with Patrick about you know, the, the leaders of the state legislature, uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and House Speaker Dade Phelan, really made out really well. And maybe it, it shows, you know, that, that Twitter is not the real world and not real life and that they've actually got more support than they do. Mm -hmm. I do believe that Twitter is not real life <laughs> and that we should stop listening to the, the just very loud but very vocal, or very vocal minority on Twitter and actually talk to other people who are interested in the, in the races. Mm -hmm. But the other point I would make about that is that it's easy for you to win those races when you've drawn the maps. Because yeah. they drew the maps, they drew the districts. Yeah, for sure, for sure. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to the Van Taylor one on this because I think that that is a very instructive thing. I mean, he was in a district where he had to think about the broad electorate because, you know, I, I can't remember the exact margin he won by in 2020, but it was low single digits and in a column county that is changing very quickly. And, you know, how much did that weigh on his decision to uh, certify the election result or, or, or do some of those votes related to the January 6th insurrection? I mean, that's only a question that he can really answer. But now he is catching a lot of grief for that, and it landed him in a runoff. And you've got to think that anyone in that position is going to be thinking about those kinds of things the next time they take a vote. So I, I definitely think the, you know, we, we saw that with, uh, well, I mean, Dan Crenshaw, I guess, is the opposite example of this, where they made his seat a lot safer um, in Houston, the, the US rep. Um, he was catching a lot of heat from that vocal, you know, minority, as we call it. And it turns out he was fine. Yeah. So. You know, I don't well, know. The, the Van Taylor thing is really interesting because he, he uh, 
uh, Patrick and I were talking about this in the last trip cast, where he he had run in the previous cycle as Mr. Bipartisan yeah. and ran ads about Mr. Bipartisan, and then suddenly he's like, no, 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 I'm no longer <laughs> Mr. Kidding. Bipartisan. <laughs> Just kidding, exactly. But I think on the flip side too, on the Democrat side, you're seeing uh, candidates that are much more progressive, much more liberal. Yeah. Uh, folks like Greg Kassar, uh, folks like Jasmine Crockett, who I'm, I'm not sure if they've called that one yet, but it looks like she's she's still in runoff territory. Yep. Uh, Jessica Cisneros, uh, obviously with uh, Henry Quay, are still in runoff territory there. You're getting that kind of candidate um, on the Democratic side. I think that speaks to the polarization that happens when redistricting is done for political purposes, which I'm sure Alexa has a lot to say about. Well, I, I was just going to say that, you know, the question about basically drawing districts on the basis of a Trump electorate, like, mm. that that does work in the short term, right? Because we sort of had a new baseline of the electorate in Texas after the 2018 election. We had increased voter participation. We And you were dealing with voters who four years ago weren't actually voting yet. And mm -hmm. so I think that it mm -hmm. works in the short term. You're safe. That's the whole way that people can use redistricting to their political advantage. We know that the courts are not very willing to upend these maps. And so it, it continues to buy Republicans some time. The problem is that the electorate keeps changing, right? Mm -hmm. And that the number of voters that you have to sort of pass around between Republican districts changes over time and it decreases over time as the electorate changes and becomes younger and becomes much more diverse and less likely to support people like yeah. Trump. So I think the question is, are the conversations we're having today about these districts going to move in the direction of the conversations we were having before redistricting about some of these districts that just had become less and less friendly or less and less easy of a win for Republicans. I mean, what we're seeing now really is the effects of redistricting. Yeah. You take control of the legislature, you draw districts to your advantage that you can control until you can't. And then you hope that you still have control next time you redraw so that you can shore up the districts that were at risk. Yeah. And to, to the point about Van Taylor, I mean, it, he was Mr. Bipartisan, but he was a pretty conservative dude. Yeah. Now they've drawn a much more red district, and now he's catching all hell for calling himself Mr. <laughs> Mr. Conservative. So uh, it is sort of a be careful what you wish for. Yeah, for do. sure. You know, another, I think, interesting example of redistricting possibly backfiring a little bit, I think, is the Cuellar seat, which in an effort <clears> by Republicans to make the neighboring district, the Vicente Gonzalez seat, more achievable by them, they put some more Democratic voters into Cuellar's seat, made it a little bit more of a Democrat friendly. Then, of course, Cuellar has this FBI raid. And now we're looking at the possibility of a quite progressive uh, candidate in that general election or a candidate who has some you know, significant legal problems. They might be kind of wishing they had gone the other direction there and that it's going to be might be harder to take that seat away. So there are all these little kind of things on the edges that I think are very interesting to watch as well. We talked a little bit about voting access and everything. Alexa, you are our voting expert. You've been following the implementation of SB1, the voting bill, for months. We have now had an election in which that happened. What was the impact? You know, I think overall, in terms of in-person voting, it was a quiet night. You know, basically any, any election in which voters are not waiting several hours to vote is a good election, I think. <laughs> That's not a great standard to compare to, but it's the one we're dealing with here. Uh, you know, I think it was a, a pretty quiet night in terms of in-person voting. 
there, it's sort of hard to gauge the effects of a lot of SB1 in such a low turnout election. You know, some of the concerns we've heard about the new freedom that poll watchers have, for example, and I think that the concern about them being at polling places is probably higher in the November general when the parties are facing off against each other versus within each party. We still, you know, we've heard from voters with disabilities and advocates who have said that they still don't have a lot of guidance about the assistance, cha the changes to assistance under SB1, and we're still waiting to see how that may or may not have played out at the polls. Again, it was a pretty low turnout number, so it's easy to anticipate that things could still come up in November. The biggest effect of SB1 we've seen so far is actually with the voting that didn't happen last night, the, but the voting that's been happening by mail, where we have several thousands of mail-in ballots kind of in limbo at this point because voters did not meet the new ID requirements that Republicans set up under SB1. You know, you're talking about these pretty close races in the Democratic AG to see who's going to be that second yep. slot in the runoff. I wouldn't be surprised if those folks were waiting for some of these mail-in ballots <clears throat> to be resolved because that's how many are still in limbo right now. Um, so that's the biggest thing we're waiting to see. We're not going to have final numbers for about a week now, for a week from now. But the question is, how many of these voters end up being disenfranchised because they can't get through these new ID requirements? If you're looking at the numbers now, it could be several thousands of voters. And in many cases, it's going to be, you know, it's voters from both parties. It's voters from all the counties. Uh, and that's sort of what we're waiting to see to be able to measure the impact of SB1. Yeah, and that gets at a question that Karen asked. Do you know who tends to vote by mail? Doesn't this... She asked, doesn't this significantly affect traditional Republicans? I mean, traditionally, we have seen Republicans use vote by mail more than Democratic, than, than Democratic voters. You know, you have to think about the requirements for voting by mail in Texas. The only people who automatically qualify are voters who are 65 and older, and that is a group of the electorate that more reliably votes for Republicans than they do for Democrats. We have seen some changes in voting by mail over the last few years, in part as Republicans have sort of taken on this campaign to you know, cast some doubt on the voting by mail process that they still sort of encourage their voters to take up even while raising flag, potential flags about it, usually without a whole lot of evidence for concern. Mm -hmm. uh, but, so the numbers have been changing. That's another thing we'll be watching to see. Does mail voting among Republicans decrease in sort of the aftermath of the campaign we've seen over the last few years from Republicans both casting doubt on it and then hiring the, you know, increasing the rules for voting by mail that seemingly are tripping up quite a few of their own voters. Yeah. I mean, one, the, the biggest issue we seem to see with voting during the day, or at least the one that was the most kind of out there getting attention was poll workers, shortage of poll workers in, in, in a lot of the big counties where people, um, you know, basically, you know, uh, couldn't keep polling places open because they didn't have enough volunteers to work there. And I think one of the questions that people were asking was, did the, um, did the measures included in SB1 have anything to do with that? Did the just more broad kind of aggressive prosecution of people alleged to have committed fraud in some way, even if that it, fraud might have been, or even if it wasn't necessarily intentional fraud, but simple mistakes that people have made or anything like that, is that keeping people from the polling places 
because they don't, you know, why am I going to volunteer for something that might end up getting me sent to jail for five years? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a legitimate question. I, one thing to keep in mind is that for primaries, primaries are technically a, a party thing. The parties run them, they contract with the counties to do sort of the logistical part of it, but they're responsible for recruiting the presiding judges and poll workers that you'll actually see at the polling place. And I don't, you know, we, we are, we, I think we still need to sort of interrogate some of the reasons that people cited for not showing up and which then caused the closure of quite a few polling places in, in a lot of state, in a lot of counties. We did see in the lead up to the election political parties, you know, continuously pleading for people to step up and work in these positions. And I don't think that you can completely divorce that from kind of the broader environment we've seen created for poll watcher for poll workers, mm -hmm. right? Even going back to the 2020 election and the sort of intense scrutiny that they were under, even when they were just counting ballots and doing nothing more than counting ballots coming in. You know, SB1 does create new penalties. It sort of creates this environment of questioning the actions of the people who are running your elections. Mm -hmm. And in a primary, that's going to include people that the parties are responsible for recruiting. And so that, that'll be one thing that we'll be looking into in these next few weeks as we sort of try to figure out why did so many people not show up and what role <coughs> did this broader environment play in that? Mm -hmm. All right, so James, you had a story about Dan Patrick a couple of weeks ago that we talked about on a previous podcast um, and his influence that he wields over the Senate. Seems like he had a pretty good night in getting his hand-picked candidates into, into place. Yeah, pretty good night. I mean, his, his control over the, the Senate only gets stronger. And uh, as, as one of the, the sources in our story said, and we, we already thought he was super strong. Um, so yeah, you can probably expect the, uh, and I think most of those, um, uh, yeah, most of those as drawn, as redrawn, they're going to be that you essentially have won. Mm -hmm. You essentially have won the seat. Mm -hmm. uh, most notably, uh, the uh, Beverly Powell's district yep. that has been redrawn. I think uh, Phil King won there. Um, but yeah, I think what that means is that we can expect in the next legislative session a much even more conservative, if, if people can imagine that, uh, Senate that will apply pressure um, and even more pressure on, on the House, which has been sort of the sort of more moderate um, level, although last session also was a very strong Much less moderate than before. Yeah, less moderate, yeah. But, but they will apply pressure because there are some things that, you know, as we covered in the story, the lieutenant governor wants to do that he meets resistance from Governor Abbott and House Speaker Dade Phelan. Um, and he'll just have all that much more firepower to apply the pressure um, and during those six months of the legislative session. All right. Well, we will be watching. It's, it's, we've got some runoffs, and we've got some other races that go into the general election, so lots more election lots news. Lots of narratives. Indeed. Narratives just <laughs> up, and down, up and down the state <laughs> for the next you know, months on months. So uh, look forward to reading about those narratives in the Texas Tribune. Um, <laughs> Thank you, James, and thank you, Alexa, and thank you to our members for your support of the Tribune and for joining us on this podcast.